Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host and moderator, Rob Richardson. I'm Tunde Ogunlana. And I'm Amisha Cross. As always, if you're watching us on YouTube, please hit that like button. Please hit subscribe. That's how more people can learn about us. If you're listening to us via podcast, if it's Apple, if it's Apple Podcast, if it's Google Play, please subscribe. Please write us. Please write us a review. More people can learn about us. More people can hear from Disruption Now. That's how we can make sure our voice uh, can get carried. More people can learn about us. We can also uh, email you. We'd love to stay in touch with you. DisruptionNow at gmail.com, or you can go to our website, DisruptionNow.com. We would love to have you subscribe. We'd love to have you as a Remember, you'll learn about the things we're doing, the events we're having. We want to connect with you. We can only do that if you want to sign up on our list. Go to disruptionnow.com, sign up for our email list. We can be in touch. We want to be in touch with you. We are honored to have Sean Holly on our show today. You know, Sean Holly learned the ropes from the late, great Johnny Cochran at the time when he was representing OJ during the trial of the century. And um, she's carried his legacy forward. She continues to fight. She now represents. As uh, Johnny Cochran says, he represents OJs, he represents no Jays. He's represented Charlemagne the God, he's represented Snoop Dogg, Justin Bieber. Uh, but what you may have really noticed about her recently is that she was in a picture with uh, Kim Kardashian and Donald Trump uh, when they got a prisoner release, a, a former prisoner, Alice Johnson, who was convicted on a nonviolent felony for conspiracy to. Uh, traffic drugs, traffic uh, crack cocaine. She got her off first time offense and was in jail for the rest of her life. And she got her off and she works day in and day out to make sure that justice is provided in this country. And we're honored to have her on our show. Sean Holly. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing well. I want to thank you for coming on. I have two co-hosts with me, Tunde Ogalana and Amisha Cross, who also are on the show and are probably going to ask a few questions uh, of you as well. So, hey, uh, so, and again, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. We're honored to have you on the show. I know you have a lot going on. You have a lot of clients. So uh, let's just actually go right into it. We want to get a kind of sense of your early beginnings and how you got to this point. You know, what did you want to be when you were growing up, and what do you want to be now? <laughs> um, well... I think I wanted to be an actress. Um, and what I want to be now is an actress. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I think I wanted to be an actress, but I'm risk averse. And, the, um, you know, there's a lot of luck involved in being an actress. And I can't, I'm not down with that. Like I have to be able to control my destiny as much as possible. And that profession to me, any kind of entertainer, there's too much luck and you have to be discovered. I mean, you could be really talented. I'm not saying I was, but you could be and still never make it. Or you could be kind of rubbish and make it. I can't have that kind of, you know, like fate be a part of it now. So I then decided instead I would control things a little more by, you know, going to law school, studying hard, taking the bar, you know, things that you have some ability to dictate how things go. My, my understanding and, and uh, looking at some articles that you didn't think law was that cool because your mother, I'm not sure if she was a lawyer, looks like she was, she got her MBA, but worked at a law firm. So you, you had up close and personal experience of what it was like to be a lawyer. And it, and it seemed like that didn't move you at all. So, uh, what made you change? No, you're, you're so right. You're so right. Um, she was the legal secretary for many years and she worked at firms that were very, very boring, uptight kind of wall street, 
uh, white shoe law firms. At that time, there really weren't even computers, so people were just poring over books and contracts and papers. And when I go visit her, there was just nothing about it that looked fun in the least. And, um, you know, I mean, I, when I, I took five years to graduate from college with a degree in English, you know, which doesn't, (laughs) you don't really know what to do with that degree necessarily. And I took a year off. I mean, I really didn't know what I wanted to do and just kind of picked law school by default, just because it's kind of what I knew having been around my mom's firms. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wasn't that excited about it. I didn't know how, what that career was going to look like. It was just like, well, I guess I'll go to law school, but then it was riveting and amazing and so interesting. Um, and then I met a lawyer. I was, then I was, I was waitressing after the summer of my first year, which is really my favorite job. I guess that's what I want to do later as a waitress. Oh, <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. We're going to talk, job. we're going to talk more about yeah. that. Okay. Okay. So I was waitressing and a guy would come in every day for lunch. He and his friend and they were lawyers and they were young and they were cool and they were fun and they worked at an entertainment firm and they were so different than the lawyers I was used to being around at my mom's firm that I thought, wait a minute, I could be a lawyer like that. And then it kind of seemed like better at that point. (laughs) Like there's, Oh, I can be this kind of way and that'll be good. So, yeah. So what do you want to be now, though, that you didn't really fully get to that? What you, Ideally? Well, I'm it. I mean, I really, I love my career. I mean, I, there's, I don't aspire to be or do anything other than what I'm doing. I mean, I um, have a practice that I love. I, you know, Johnny used to say we represent the OJs and the NoJs. I currently <laughs> represent OJs and NoJs. I have the ability to you know, represent people who can't necessarily afford the firm where I am, but I also have clients who can. Um, I can pick the cases that I do. I can reject cases I don't want to do. I feel like I'm helping people, which is really important to me. I look at what I do as really like a a service, a service of service. Um, I feel really rewarded and fulfilled by being able to help people through, you know, probably the most frightening, difficult time of their life. Um, so it, you know, I'm, I'm not, it's, you know, I'm not trying to be anything other than this. And you said that you love being a, a waitress, which I can, I can see the connection. You're, you're, you're helping people, you're serving people. No, and you're doing it in a way. So it sounds like you've always wanted to do something where you felt as if you were having an impact and you feel like you're doing that in your current role, it sounds like. Well, and let me just say this. When, what, what is really different about being a waitress from doing what I do now is, you know, when you're a waitress, everybody, almost everybody that you're helping dealing with is happy. They're out, they're happy. You're making them happier by bringing them their delicious food and drink. It's a very happy environment. Unlike what I do now, even if I'm able to get the case dismissed or, you know, the outcome is good, still my clients had to go through a difficult time. They have to often, you know, pay bail or legal fees or, you know what I mean? So they may be happy with the outcome, but the situation itself is certainly not a happy one. I've actually had a friend go through an investigation with the FBI 
and this friend came out, nothing happened uh, to them, but what they learned through the process is that, you know, it, it's, they, they had a whole different view of how our criminal justice system works, and you, I'm sure you've dealt with the FBI quite a bit. When they have their mind made up, it doesn't matter where you're at on the totem pole, who you are, if they want you to be involved in the case, they come after you, and it's very scary. And uh, Which, Go ahead. It, it's interesting that you say that because I don't do a lot of federal work for that very reason. I mean, if the federal government is coming after you, be it the FBI or the DEA or the IRS or whomever it is, they have all of their ducks in a row. The, the law, federal law, is really stacked against the defendant. And so it's, it's really hard to achieve some measure of justice in the federal system. I don't, I don't like that. I don't, it, it worries me. I'm upset. I can't sleep. I can't eat. It's not a healthy place for me to be. So I find that um, in state court, which is where I do most of my criminal right. work, um, there's a lot more discretion and flexibility and understanding and you can have a conversation and, uh, I, I like that a lot better. But as a defense attorney, sometimes you have to defend as, as Johnny Cocker said, you defend OJs and NOJs. And <clears throat> oftentimes you defend, uh, people that from the appearance wise, people assume are already guilty or, or, or they're accused of something that's highly un you know, highly unpopular or just highly controversial or just highly or very heinous. How do you block out the noise? Cause yeah. you know, you're talking to someone, I'm a lawyer and I understand the process, but there, but as much as people say they appreciate the process and appreciate the constitution, a, a lot of people just want to assign guilt before a trial's even happened. How do you block out the noise and how do you explain it to people? Why this is a necessary function to have defense in this country? Um, well, you know, I mean, in, in high profile cases, there, there is a lot of noise and you don't want to block it out. You want to deal with it and change the noise to be something that's good for your client. I mean, in high profile cases, I, I find that you really have to deal with the media and, and, and do everything that you can to get the media as much on your side as possible. And if you were simply to block out the noise in those cases, then the media will um, really just, as you said, assign all sorts of nefarious intent and, and guilt to your client. Cause that's the narrative that, that sells more, I guess. So you really have to entertain and then change the noise in high profile cases. Um, and, and the no J cases that, you know, are just regular cases. Um, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the noise is. I mean, I'm just dealing with the case and, um, and I, you know, when people say, especially when I was a public defender and you're a public defender, you know, you represent a ton of guilty people. And the question at every cocktail party is, you know, how do you defend those people? And I would liken it to, being a, a surgeon, um, or trauma nurse in the ER. And so this, you know, body comes rolling in from an ambulance and something traumatic has happened that requires your immediate attention and you just get to work. And when they, you know, when you see who it is, whoever the person is that you happen to dislike the most in the world, be that Donald Trump or whoever it is, you don't go, Oh, wait, 
it's Donald Trump, therefore I'm not going to, or whomever it is for you, uh, you don't go, oh, forget it. I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to do this. I mean, you're just a, you know, a, a, a skilled tactician who has to do your job and you just see a spleen that needs hydration or whatever I made that up. Um, and that's kind of the way I saw my work as a public defender, which is, you know, you're, you're looking at the issues, you're figuring out, you know, how to make sure that your client's rights are being protected, that the government is not just going to railroad them, that only admissible evidence is going to be admitted, that you're going to be fighting to keep things out that should be kept out. And the only way that any of us can have a fair trial or fair shake in the justice system is if everyone has that. I mean, we can't have some situation, as you know, where somebody decides who gets, you know, a fair trial and who doesn't. I mean, that can't work. So everybody gets to. Everyone does. Makes sense. Only I'm just, can work. Amisha, I wanted you to, uh, if you can't ask a few questions, you want, you got a few questions to ask. Amisha? Sure. Um, your background in history and the work that you've done has been pretty stellar. I think that, you know, in anyone's particularly young minority girls would be very excited to know of what actually brought you down this path, but more so, um, what are some of the, what are some pieces of memorable, memorable advice that you feel like you could give to young girls who are interested in this path, who see entertainment law as being a, a very strong thing for them, but are also intrigued by some of the defenses that you've um, held up for clients? You know, it's so interesting, especially here in LA, you know, I speak at a lot of law schools and, and universities and people are always drawn to the idea of being an entertainment lawyer. And then when you ask them, what do you think an entertainment lawyer is? <laughs> they don't really have an answer to that. And I get it. I mean, I remember wanting in law school at some point, I thought I wanted to be a sports agent and I, really had no idea what that was. It just sounded like it would be really fun and glamorous and I'd be going out to lunch with sports stars and what we'd be talking about or what I'd be doing that required me to have a legal education and license to practice. I don't know. It just sounded glamorous. But the reality is, um, and I say this to when I'm speaking to these people is, you know, if you're an entertainment lawyer, for the most part, you're doing transactional work, which is to say you're working on a contract and not that there's anything wrong with that. But the only difference here is that it, you may, you're going to recognize some of the names in the contract or the studio or the network, but at the end of the day, it's still a contract. And so I consider myself primarily, and I do things other than criminal law, but I'm a, I'm a defense attorney. I'm a criminal defense lawyer whose clients sometimes happen to be celebrities. But at the end of my day, I'm a criminal defense attorney. And so I think it's important for people, and I don't know if I'm answering your question about what I would say to young people or girls thinking about pursuing a career as an entertainment lawyer, is really what's important is to think about what you want to do. If you want to sit in an office and draft a contract, again, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's what you're going to be doing as an entertainment lawyer in the transactional field. If you want to be in court, standing up for someone, representing them, fighting the good fight on behalf of somebody who's been accused of something that they maybe didn't do, 
then that's a criminal lawyer. And then maybe you're going to get to a place where you represent celebrities who are charged criminally. But it's important to figure out what it is that, that brings you, that's of interest to you, that brings you joy, that you're passionate about. And then going there, finding the place that allows you to do those things. And did you ever feel any type of anxiety early in your career, particularly noting that you're dominating in, in, in a field that is largely, um, that is largely male? Um, what types of anxiety do you think that you felt or did you have any moments of doubt? Um, oh, sure. Um, you know, I, I started out as a public defender and one of the things that is great about the public defender's office is you're really just kind of thrown out there immediately. Uh, you know, you might be doing a trial within the first couple of months of you passing the bar and, you know, so it's just out of the frying pan and the fire or whatever it's called. And so, you know, obviously there's a lot of anxiety just in terms of being in front of a jury with someone liberty in your, in your hands. Now, you know, even though I've been doing this a long time, the reality is the time that I graduated, I mean, the law school class, and I think it's continued to be this way, is probably more women than men. So, you know, the group of people that I entered the public defender's office with were a lot of women, maybe more than men. There's a lot of women judges. So, I mean, I'm happy to say that that part of it, it has not been in and of itself anxiety producing. Um, at least here in LA, there's a lot of women doing this work and in very high prominent positions, which is great. Um, you know, I imagine this is Rob again. Um, it must've been pretty exciting working for Johnny Cochran at that time. Can you think about, take yourself back to that moment and what's the most valuable thing you learned from him and what's the most valuable piece of advice that you still take to this day? Um, so Johnny was the most amazing mentor one could have. I feel so lucky, um, that I got to work with him for as long as I did. And to this day, I constantly ask myself in situations, what would Johnny do? But, you know, I started working with him when I had been practicing, uh, it was my fifth year of practice. I was a, you know, a young lawyer. And I think at that early stage, well, I'll just speak for myself, of my career, though I think this is true of many others, I mean, you have in mind how a lawyer is supposed to be, how you're supposed to dress, how you're supposed to act, how you're supposed to treat your opposing counsel. And it's very, you know, staid and rigid and formalistic and, and legalistic and you, you know, and the whole thing, I mean, you have in mind what, how a lawyer is supposed to be. And I hadn't yet, you know, developed my own unique way. So you're just kind of following <laughs> this formula or pattern or model of what you think that is. Johnny shattered all that in the best ways. I mean, he was so charming, so funny, so fun none of which took away from his brilliance as a lawyer and his preparation and his ability to do incredible things in the courtroom and, and in the you know meeting rooms. But his personality was great and he was charming and charismatic and friendly and not mean to opposing counsel, but nice to oppose. So 
it, it just, it's like, it just shattered for me this idea uh, that it's supposed to be this particular way and you're supposed to be this particular way. And it was like, no, you can completely be yourself and in no way compromise, you know, your great work as a, as a lawyer um, if you're nice to people. And when I started doing civil litigation, um, I mean, I can't tell you how many of my opposing counsel would say to me, you are the nicest <laughs> opposing counsel we've ever talked to because I just think people get into this mindset of, you know, because this is an adversarial system, I've got to be, you know, unpleasant to you. And Johnny was not like that at all. And, and I'm not like that at all. Uh, that is a good transition to really talk about the OJ trial because the OJ trial has, has, has had a lot of influence on your career, I would, I would say. And, um, yeah, I remember where I was when the OJ verdict was announced. I mean, it was that big of a deal during, during my time or during our time I was in uh, high school and, uh, I, mean, I recall it very vividly. I mean, there were, uh, you know, my, White. I had a very mixed class, so my, my high school was about 50% black, 50% white. So I got a chance to see in real time how America reacted in real time. Uh, as you know, mm-hmm. I'm sure, uh, a lot of white America, I can just speak for the people that were in my classroom and the teachers at that time, I mean, they reacted as if a relative had, had been murdered. I mean, literally. I mean, yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and just reacted as if this was the worst injustice ever in the history of America. Uh, yes. you know, black folks had a very different reaction. It was, it was vindication, I think, uh, some black folks felt, particularly when they heard the stories of uh, the LAPD, the, uh, the officer being racist. It confirmed what the experience of many black Americans, myself included, who have had, uh, who have had interactions uh, with uh, law enforcement, not saying all law enforcement is bad, but you know there are some law enforcement that are uh, racist in their application and in their targeting. And so it, it confirmed, rightly or wrongly, people's beliefs, and it was kind of like confirmation bias. Did you, did you see that playing out that way? Did you know it was going to play out that way? Or did that surprise you, the level that it played out to, the fact that President Clinton at the time, President Bill Clinton, actually had to weigh in to talk about the trial and talk about race relations as a reaction to the verdict? Um, well, during the trial, I think we were all aware of the fact that white people and black people were viewing the thing through different lenses. And we, you know, and you, you are absolutely right when you say that people acted as if it was their own relatives. I mean, I say to this day, because all these years later, 25 years later, whatever it is, when people learn that I was a part of that case, I mean, like white people can still get like really upset and want to like argue with you about it. And I say to them, and this is something that, that was clear to us at the time, that Robert Blake was accused of killing his wife. He was acquitted. There is no one that I've ever talked to who doesn't believe that he did it, whether he did it or not, I don't know, but people certainly believed that he did. And and people therefore believed that it was an injustice that he was acquitted. And no one is mad about that. No one. (laughs) I don't know anybody who has any kind of emotional reaction to that injustice. Um, so, you know, when you bring that up to white people, they, 
have to acknowledge that what I've just said is so. But I mean, even just kind of going through the case, things like that would come up where people would just be so upset just about it in a way that they had not been upset about anything else. Also, you know, we, you know, there were just little kind of anecdotes where we felt like if this had not been um, Nicole and if it had been Marguerite, his first wife, who was black, we don't think that it would have been on TV. <laughs> we don't think he, I mean, he would have, they would have been bail. He would have bailed out. It wouldn't be on TV. It wouldn't be the, you know, the big, the trial of the century. So, I mean, we were definitely aware as it was going on that it was being treated by everyone in a, you know, in a way that we could tell had the circumstances or the races of the people been different would not have been the same for sure. Now, do I think, did I, did we think that it was going to be, you know, these two completely divergent responses to the verdict? I don't think that we thought about that and that it would be as stark of a contrast as it was, but it, you know, definitely wasn't, wasn't surprising. Tune Hey, Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Um, yeah, no, I, I have my questions from what you said before, but based on your comments on OJ almost made me go on a whole different tangent because we just, <laughs> Rob, Rob, I think we just did a show on um, privilege, right? Correct. Right. A week or two ago. So what, it just, you bring up a lot of comments that I think we, we kind of echoed as well on, on that prior show. But, but no, what I wanted to do, honestly, Sean, is just commend you from the way you opened up. Um, you know, I, 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 I read your bio and, and, and you've got a stellar, you know, um, you know, um, um, bio CV and career and you. for you to open up and acknowledge that it took you five years to complete an undergrad in English. Then you took a year off and you were a waitress, I think was, it was just very refreshing for me to hear, honestly, um, because a lot of us have, uh, what I would call an, uh, a zigzag line to our success. And I think even yeah. the, the college scandal thing that just broke out in the last few months was another example of this idea that people want to be so perfect and this fake idea of just, you know, you're going to go to high school, get a 4.0, then go to Ivy League, and then you're going to go be some either, you know, robotics engineer or the big lawyer or the big partner <laughs> yeah. at the CPA firm. And it's, it's really refreshing to hear that a very successful attorney at the top of her game and 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 on top of her peers um just had the regular kind of zigzag start but it was your ambition and i also think and it's funny rob mentioned the book um laws of human nature because we're reading that kind of together all of us because what it talks about a lot is your childhood or sorry not your but but the childhood of, uh, mm -hmm. of all of us and how it affects the outcome of us as adults and i feel like your journey did start even even though you had the the experience with your mom that you shared of, of kind of reading the boring books and kind of the the old white shoe law firm that was boring it's almost like that experience though was necessary because i'm sure a lot of other waitresses served young kind of fun lawyers but whatever <laughs> happened that 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 foundation that your mom gave you it kind of brought you back and 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 you said okay now I see a way I can I can go back to that, but in my way and the fun way. So I just wanted to commend you <laughs> yeah. for, for kind of opening up all that because it's great. And like Amisha said, you know, there's a lot of not just young women, but young men, too, that just are anxious. Um, I own my own wealth management firm and 
you know, it's not easy. Like, as you know, being out there kind of slaying dragons. So I, I, I just want to come for what, for kind of, you know, being so candid about your past. No, thank you. You know, it, it's interesting. I mean, I work at a firm with, um, a, you know, every almost, yeah, I'd say everyone, everyone there went to like top tier law schools, you know, Harvard and, you know, a number of them. And, and I didn't, and I'm the one who is every year, you know, a best woman lawyer in the state or best entertainment, whatever it is. And I don't say that, you know, to like brag on myself. I'm just saying that it's, you know, to, to your point that it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, I, I remember when I was studying for the bar and you take a bar review course and I met a young woman in the bar review course and she had done everything right. She'd gone to all the right schools every summer. She had, you know, clerked that was or the judge or done something that was the perfect thing. And I had done none of that. And I said, God, look at you. You did all these things and I've done none of those things. And she said, but we're in the exact same place right now. And she's studying for the bar and you had fun and did all of this great stuff. And I did not. <laughs> and she was right. I mean, it struck me. Obviously, you've got to do what you've got to do, but there, you you are right. There are different paths to get there, and I feel like the, the passion, you know, the, the, the way, you know, I don't know if this is a, a question that you guys have in mind, or maybe you asked it before and I just didn't answer it, but, you know, the, the way I ended up getting to where I am is that in law school, I had a, my criminal law professor said, you need to do a clerkship in the public defender's office. You know, we were interviewing for, for summer associate jobs for summer after second year of law school. And I was interviewing at, you know, traditional kind of civil litigation firms. And she had been a public defender. And she said, you really need to interview with the public defender's office. And because I trusted her, because it turns out she knew me better than I knew myself, I listened to her and I took this job. And one of the very, and it was, you know, it was like the, the late 80s, and there was this huge, you know, crack, which at that time was really even called like rock cocaine more, ep, you know, it was epidemic. It was just a huge deal. So I am working as a law clerk in the public defender's office, and I have to talk to the people who have been charged with, in, in this case, lots of possession of rock cocaine. I mean, that's what almost everybody was charged with. And I go, to, and I go back in the holding cell, and it's just, filled with black and brown men. I mean, I can't believe that, you know, there's just like, that's all. That's the only people who've been arrested in the preceding 72 hours with black and brown men. 90% of them are charged with possession of rock cocaine. And my job is to talk to them and find out from their, their story. And each of them says individually, as I talk to them, I am guilty. I possess rock cocaine. I want to plead guilty. Okay, tell me what happened. They say, I'm walking down the street, the police pulled up, told me to put my hands against the car, they searched me and they found rock cocaine. See, I'm guilty. And I'm like, wait, hold on, they can't do that. That's a violation of the Fourth Amendment. No, they don't know that. They don't think they're telling me something that is helpful to their case. They're just telling me what happened as far as they're concerned. That proves they're guilty. I didn't read the police report. The police report says, in every single one of these cases, we were driving down the street, we saw the defendant, the defendant looked in our direction, looked scared, reached his pocket, and threw rock cocaine on the sidewalk in front of us, which is absurd. And what the police have to say, because they can't say the truth of what they really did. And I am on fire. Like, I cannot believe that this is happening, that there is a holding in cell. In America. 
packed with black and brown men who have just been, whose rights have been violated by the police in a, just a systemic way that these guys don't even know that their rights have been violated. As far as they're concerned, they're guilty and they're going to plead guilty. And I, I can't believe it. And I'm like, this, I, I have to become a public defender. Like this cannot be. Wow. And it was that sense of passion and pursuit of justice. And like this, I have to, I can't like whatever dream I had of being a sports agent, whatever I thought that was, it then kind of, Paled in terms of importance to me as this, which had to do with concepts of like liberty and justice for all. Like, no, 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 this is what I'm doing. And then I, and then I was a public defender. And then I was a senior law clerk in the public defender's office. And then I took and passed the bar and I was a public defender. And it was that the passion of, you know, trying to do something there where this, these horrible injustices were that is what kind of propelled me along. That's awesome. I, I haven't I have another question, but from what you just said, it made me want to ask you because I, I sent um, Rob and and the team here, um, uh, uh, you know, on our on our group message thing from my phone, uh, uh, an article yesterday that was that was, um, you know, bothersome for me because it involves what you just said, you know, um, law enforcement who um, and I definitely don't want to paint all law enforcement in a negative uh, light. Um, but it's, this was about that Sandra Bland case. And I yeah, guess yep. it came out the video that she had taken from her own cell phone that was withheld, I guess. Yep. By, and and it shows a cop right? basically yelling at her and she's just saying, what's up? Yep. Why? He's forcing her to get out of the car. It doesn't look like for any reason, I don't see why he just didn't write her citation and leave. And, you know, and it seems like he's escalating it because he's just upset that he's he wants to be in control and he wants to tell her to get out the car yeah. and she doesn't want to get out the car and typical kind of just alpha male BS. And, yeah. you know, and then they're saying in the article that he wrote that he was scared for his life and this whole thing. And I'm right. thinking, I started thinking about the guy that got shot in South Carolina when the guy said, oh, I'm scared for my life. And then we see on the yeah. video, not only does he shoot the guy in the back, but he throws the taser down next to the dead body on camera. Yep. And to, to try and it was part of his police report that he took my taser and I was scared for my life. Yeah. And so my question right. is, we <laughs> see these officers lying on their report and then on camera, it's something else. Are they ever reprimanded yeah. for that? Because maybe they get off on the acquitted murder and all that. But like, how does that work? Yeah, no, I, and I come from a family of law enforcement, so I agree with you that, you know, not all law enforcement is bad, but, um, you know, you can go into that job. I found now in 30 years of practicing the kind of law where I deal with law enforcement officers a lot, you can go into that job for the wrong reasons, which is exactly what you said to exert control and authority over people. And that's not a good reason to go into a job where at least the model here with the LAPD is to protect and to serve. Like you're not <laughs> protecting and serving. You're doing really a disservice. Um, what is so offensive about it all is how they circle the wagons and rally around behind each other and nobody, you know, wants to be the one to rat on the other one. And they just have each other's backs in this horrible, unjust, you know, <laughs> system that it's just, it's just wrong. And they have, in addition to the, I want to control and exert authority and all of that, 
they also have a feeling of, you know, the end justifies the means. And so, you know, we're going to do whatever it takes to find uh, whatever it is, some illegal contraband, whatever it is. And, it, you know, they don't care about, like, <laughs> the Constitution or what they're not allowed to do. So, I, you know, I, I just feel, and what was so frustrating as a young public defender, now I'm in a position to be able to challenge, you know, what, what I told you about, you know, the, what the cops are lying about walking down the street and throwing it in the sidewalk. But you, that's a motion that you have in front of a judge where the police officer takes the stand and, and takes an oath to tell the truth and then tells that ridiculous story. And then, you know, and then the judge, and then you make this motion because judge that's ridiculous. Obviously that did not happen. Surely you are going to suppress this evidence because this person just told us all a lie. And we clearly don't believe that. And the judge would say your motion to dismiss or to suppress the evidence is respectfully denied. I mean, it was, I mean, you have to at some point calm down and learn to deal with this, which isn't, you know, I mean, it's good, good for your health. <laughs> so you don't have an ulcer, but at the same time is bad because you have to, to on a certain level come to expect this and know this is going to happen and know that you're not going to win. You know, awful. No, and what worries me, Sean, is that, um, and not definitely, I don't want to go into like a full on political thing here, but it's like, it's all <laughs> time, down down to the top of our country, like in the open. I know that always there's been shenanigans yeah. behind the scenes, you know, in the white houses in the past and, and the government, but you know, I'm on, I was telling Rob earlier that I'm on about page 50 of the Mueller report. You know, I, I, I read a few pages every other day or so and just kind of, and I'm not even like I, only page 50. So let's say, what am I? 12% through the whole thing. <laughs> I, 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 only on page 50. I don't see anything that is telling me that there was nothing there and all the stuff that you keep hearing. And it's like, I don't know, you know, maybe it's just I got a different kind yeah. of integrity and ethics. I just don't understand. How no, but it's the same thing. Yeah. But I think different standards are applied to different people. And when you think about people, when they say they believe in this Constitution, say, do you believe in it only for certain people at certain times? Does it yeah. only apply, you know, to white collar criminals? Uh, but when you talk about the Fourth Amendment right. and you have a regular person on the street, uh, it doesn't apply to him because... I think the I think the reasoning is well they had something on them so they were guilty already. That's not how it works because if you if you if you remove rights then all of our rights get removed and then you can step over the line which we which we see happening over and over again. I want to get to a question about this and then I want to move to talk about the criminal justice system as a whole and some of the work you've done with Kim Kardashian. Um, when you think about officers and the defense that's all that always comes up, and again, we said it again, there are, there are many good, uh, uh, mostly good officers that are out there. The problem is the bad ones are not held accountable. I mean, and so they can always go back to the defense that I feared for my life, I feared for my safety, despite overwhelming evidence that that wasn't true. It seems like they only need to say that they believed it at the time, and even if their belief was unreasonable, it's an acceptable defense. That's what it seems like to me. What do no, we need to you're do exactly right. to change the standard? Like, how can we get people to make them understand? Like, it's this is not in the best interest of America. Obviously, it's not in the best interest of law enforcement because I think law enforcement is going to be less safe if people don't think they can trust law enforcement. Uh, what what can we do to help change the standard, change the narrative? You know, as your world, what do you think we can do about that? Um, I don't know that. I, I don't know what can be done. I mean, when I 
before the OJ, so when I went to Johnny's office at that time, all he did, well, there was no criminal defense, notwithstanding the fact that we took the OJ case, it was all civil rights police misconduct. So this is exactly what we were dealing with, except there weren't, you know, cell phone cameras yet to disprove what had been written in the police report or what the police officer was going to testify to. And uh, not that, not that, by the way, that, that having video footage of the thing has changed it, has it? Clearly <laughs> As it hasn't. we've seen, there's video footage which disproves the whole thing and still the results and the outcome is the same. I'm not sure that it changes so long as the victims continue to be people of color. I mean, maybe, you know, I'm sure you guys follow, you know, Sean King on Twitter, Instagram. Yep. I mean, he's constantly showing how the police are easily, every time, able to apprehend, you know, these white guys who have shot up a whole bunch of people, who shot at cops, who <laughs> killed a bunch of people, and they always manage to apprehend those people without any kind of violence. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not, not wishing that this horrible fate that meets black people encountered by the police, that that now happened to white people too. I'm not saying that, but I mean, that seems to be the thing that, you know, that changes it when, when, when they, when they become victims of whatever the injustice is, that seems to cause the shift. Yeah. But so long yeah. as it's not. It, you know, then things are free. You know, it's like we were talking about, you know, like with Philando Castile, like, yep. you know, the NRA is constantly saying, you know, what stops the bad guy with the gun, a good guy with the gun. Well, Philando Castile's a good guy with the gun. Just to make sure that people know what happened, like Philando uh, Castile was pulled over by an officer and he told the officer that I have a, a firearm, I'm licensed to do it, it's in there. And when he told the officer that, essentially the officer killed him. And, and um, yeah, he was doing and, everything. And he, you would you would think and hope and expect that the NRA would come out against the officers and in defense of a person who is doing what they say they want people to do, which is have a registered firearm that they're licensed to carry. Okay, but they don't mean us <laughs> when they say that. They don't mean us. They mean other white people. And so, you know, I mean, I just don't see anything changing until that part of it changes. And I don't see that part of it changing. So here we are. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I was going to say, I think this kind of last, call it maybe 10 years, um, I would say from Sarah Palin with we need to take our country back, um, which I think, you know, it's pretty evident what that means. Yeah to today's, yeah. you know, uh, find people on both sides or the Steve King, the congressman, as, you know, I'm a proud, yeah. you know, white nationalist. I mean, Trump said nationalist, but the other guy didn't even hide it. He just, I'm a white nationalist. Um, right, right. I think, I think what my lesson is, um, as I was naive prior to all this, thinking that the country had, had really kind of moved past certain things, is that the, the, the psychological strength of tribalism uh, which has manifested itself in our modern world as as race and, and kind of racism is is so much more powerful than anything rational. And even going yeah. back at the national level, it goes back to your point, right? Like I've thought about the same thing. Like, why should I be surprised that half this country and half the United States Congress just wants to look the other way on the Mueller report when there's facts in there that and forget about Trump. I mean, just the fact that Russia 
is actively attacking our country right now. Like, and, and, yeah, and that to right. me, because Trump will be out of office at some point, you know, next year or in five years, whatever, you know, happens. But Russians are going to be Russians for the next thousand years. So we got to deal with that. <laughs> right. And, and I feel like it's the same. I was thinking about that. Like, wow, we even have on camera, black people that are unarmed being killed by police officers. And somehow that becomes a constant national debate. Like, Oh, is it wrong or not? And what happens right. when someone right. buys George Zimmerman's gun for a quarter million dollars at an auction and, you know, all this stuff. And it's like, yeah. that's where I just have kind of like, I'm, I'm kind of sad for our country. Like, they make damn. the victim tune day. They yeah. make the victim the one that's guilty. They figure out a way to put Trayvon right. Martin no, exactly. on trial. That's my point. And that's why I, I, that's why I kind of permeated up to now what's going on with the whole, you know, at the national level of the, the administration. Like, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that with strong evidence, People that are already kind of just want to believe something will just ignore any evidence to the contrary. Yeah. I mean, we can even go to climate change and another thing, but you know, it's just yep. amazing. Yep. And yeah. I, I didn't want to believe all that years ago. And it's just the evidence keeps showing me that I'm, I'm wrong in my naivete. Right. So let's, let's, yeah, let's, let's switch topics you. a little bit. I want to talk about the criminal justice system and your involvement with Kim Kardashian in, in particular, and really talk a little bit about Alice Johnson because it kind of relates to the conversation we're having now. Uh, yeah. And and so, you know, a lot of people don't know your your ties to Kim actually goes back to the L.J. Simpson trial as well because her father was on the dream team with you. Was that is that correct, Kim? I think he was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Her, her dad was on the defense team. He and I were close friends. I came to know his kids uh, very well, and they were, and they were kids. And... Um, you know, we did social things together and, and we remained close. And so I have, you know, and continue to do work for them. And, uh, Kim has always, always been interested in, you know, criminal investigation or just that whole kind of side of things. And so when she texted me, I guess it was October, of, I guess, 2017, I guess so. Yeah. She, um, texted me a link to a story about Alice Marie Johnson. And she said, and the link, the story, you know, it's really well produced a video. Um, and she said, let's try to get this woman out of prison. Now, Alice Marie Johnson, somebody who had no record, who was a, um, wife and mother of, you know, I can't four kids. I think she worked at, uh, I think it was FedEx in middle management, you know, just a regular middle-class American. Um, and she lost her job. Her husband left. One of her kids, um, died in like a scooter accident. I think it's her 12 year old child and things really started to go downhill for her. It looked like her house was going to be foreclosed upon. I mean, things were getting really bad and someone came to her and said, listen, you can, for a thousand dollars a pop, uh, all you have to do is going to be, it's a drug conspiracy, but you're never going to see the drugs. You're not going to have anything to do with the drugs. All you're going to do is be a telephone deal, which is to say you get a call. I'm going to call you at a certain time. They're going to say something cryptic. And then you're going to relay that cryptic message in another call on the other side. It's not going to be about drugs. It's not going to sound like it's about drugs. And that's, and every time you do that, you get a thousand dollars. So it was wrong. She acknowledges it was wrong, but you know, it's not 
like it was, you know, the crime of the century or anything. So when the drug conspiracy got busted, the people who were far more culpable than she, you know, worked out deals and she went to trial and she lost. And going back to the beginning of our conversation, when I said this, you know, I don't like doing federal, the federal sentencing guidelines called for her to get life without the possibility of parole on a first time nonviolent drug offense. So she's in prison. She's been in prison for almost 22 years. She's been a model and purpose prisoner. She has taken every class. She works in the hospice. She's the prison playwright. Everybody has good things to say about her, including the warden. Um, And, you know, she wants, as she should, to get out, having served 22 years. So Kim sees the story. Kim says, let's try to get her out. I think that that seems impossible. But, you know, I'm, let's try. Um, and you so thought it was impossible because, Kim, just, just so you know, because you did say, I think that Obama rejected this application, correct? Yes, and the reason that Obama rejected, and she, so everybody thought that, she, that Obama would for sure grant her clemency. She was kind of at the top of the list of most deserving people. And what happened was his team, the clemency team, spoke with the, the, the U.S. attorney who had prosecuted her and said, what do you think? Should her sentence be commuted? And he said, she hasn't changed at all. Now, he knew nothing about whether she changed or not. That's just what he said. And, and when her family learned that he said this, they camped out at his office and showed him all of the amazing things that she had done. Um, and he was like, oh, my God, I didn't know. And by the time he tried to reverse and let them know Obama was out of office. So now Trump is in office. It certainly doesn't seem like something that he would do. I wouldn't have thought that's kind of, you know, yeah. I mean, so, so it's about convincing Trump that she, her sentence should be commuted. Kim knew Ivanka, um, and contacted her. Ivanka put Kim in touch with Jared, who, you know, this is an issue for him. And I then started looking into the legal side of it, figuring out what lawyers we needed to have on our team who knew how to do this and what we were going to need to get this done. And we just both had our roles and Jared would call Kim and say, you know, I need this and this and this and this. And then I call the lawyers and say, we need to get this and this and this and this. And then I get it. I put it together. I get it to her and she'd get it to Jared and, Ultimately, that culminated in our being in the Oval Office in May. I don't know that when we set out that we, you know, to do this, that we knew that this was going to mean like a face-to-face meeting with Trump in the Oval Office at some point. He wanted to meet Kim Kardashian. (laughs) That's my guess. No, no doubt. No doubt. So that's where we were, and that's what happened. And um, it was really, I mean, surreal doesn't even begin to sum it up. I mean, being there, sitting across from him, uh, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was crazy. I'm, I'm sure, crazy. and, and, and you, you were quoted as saying there are thousands of Alice's who are stuck in the same situations who don't deserve to be there. Thinking about that quote that you just said and the work that Kim wants to do, my uh, what I read today is that she's going to start, I guess, a reality show based upon this. I'm assuming you're going to have some involvement in that. What do you think that can, what do you think that can do to help, I guess, 
empathize those who are going through the situations that Alice Johnson is going through. Since you said there are thousands, there might be tens of thousands of those. What what do you think is the aim of this uh, reality show, and what can all of us do to make sure that we're, um, uh, you know, doing everything we can to improve the fate of people like and like like Allison Johnson? Well, you know this this whole thing, Alice, um, led to the First Step Act, which was you know a bill supported by both parties and allows for the reconsideration of these cases um, where people have been sentenced according to old federal sentencing guidelines um, and who are have spent outrageously long and unjust sentences, incredibly long periods of time. And so, you know, Brittany Barnett, who is one of the lawyers that we hired, who is amazing and who's, uh, who has a, a nonprofit, um, where this is all she does is, is help free people serving unjust sentences. Um, and Kim and she are working together to continue that work. And I know that part of the reason Kim wants to be a lawyer is so that she can do a lot of this work herself. Um, I mean, it's really amazing. It's amazing that this has happened, that there has been a shift in the way these cases are, are viewed. Um, it's amazing that it has happened in the Trump administration. Um, but it is. I mean, I get letters, emails, dozens every single day from Alice's. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, there's just, there's not enough time in the day or lawyers available to do it all. But well, let I mean, us I'm know just, about so some of that. that. Let us know about some of that. Just sorry to interrupt you, but let us know about because okay. because what we'll do is advertise the different cases out there just so we can at least tell their stories in a different way. And we love to figure out any way we can help advertise what's going on with the reality show as well. Because look, if, if we can, if people can be entertained and we can actually educate and make a difference, then I, I don't care how it looks. Uh, Cause I do think, and I'd like to get your comment on this, then I want to wrap up with some, uh, with some final uh, questions, some uh, more personal questions. Uh, it's, you know, I, I do think some black women have given Kim Kardashian a hard time. I know they have, and I th- I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, yeah. Do Do you think that well, women in general? Yeah, women in general. That's true. <laughs> you know? And yeah. I think I think I think yeah. black women are harder because they feel cultural appropriation and things like that. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. it's neither here nor there. I'm sure women in general do give Kim Kardashian a hard time. Uh, do you think she's misunderstood? And, and 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 what is it that you would want people to know about her that doesn't accurately reflect what you see in the media every day? Well, you know, there there is no person who has ever been in Kim's presence who would not come away and say that she is a very nice, genuine, sweet person. I mean, she's so nice. She's so sweet. She's so friendly. She's so considerate. And I don't know that there's anything that she does, you know, on magazines or on TV that belies that. Other than that, you know, she's beautiful and rich and seems to be and is living a very lavish luxurious lifestyle and so maybe we just on our own decide that that means she must be snotty or arrogant or something but she's none of those things she's absolutely none of those things she's a very nice person um and you know what she has all the money in the world she doesn't have to be studying for 
you know, to take the bar. She doesn't have to be doing any of that. She doesn't have to be spending her time or her money trying to help people who are primarily, you know, black and brown people get out of her. She doesn't have to be doing any of that. She could just be sitting on a stack of money on an island that she owns. And she's chosen to do the work, to do good. And, I, you know, it's hard to find fault with that. I agree. We're going to have her on the show. I'm going to put it out there. Um, just some final things here. So let, let's just, I want to kind of change, change direction a little bit. Can you think about a time you failed in your career or in personal life? Doesn't matter. Uh, what you learned from that and how maybe that set you up for greater opportunity, greater success. Huh? Um, well, I mean, I don't want to suggest that I haven't failed. I think that I haven't really looked at at things that people might consider failures to be failures. I mean, I think I have a, a very kind of sunny and optimistic view of things. I think I feel like everything happens for a reason. I sure. feel like there are there are no mistakes, only lessons. So I don't think I view... Um, past events as as failures necessarily. So I really lessons. look at them as learning experiences. Honestly, I really do. So for that reason, I can't like think of something that was some, you know. Well, give us your biggest learning lesson. Happened, you know what I mean? How about your biggest learning lesson? Huh? Something that, uh, then let's just change the nature of the question. Your biggest well, learning you know lesson. Uh, there was, okay. I Okay. So um, there was a time when um a book was going to be written about the OJ trial by a person who was seemingly friendly to the defense team and who we made sure was always in the courtroom during the trial so that this, you know, he could chronicle the case and the proceedings. And this was all going to be a positive thing for OJ. And so when the trial was over, we all were supposed to sit down with him and, you know, talk about our experience and how we perceived certain things. And he somehow, I don't really know how, knew a lot of things that were really privileged and confidential things. So he would ask you, you know, when this confidential thing happened, how did you feel? And it was really tricky because to answer the question would be to <laughs> confirm that the thing had happened, which was a privileged thing. So I didn't know what to do. I went to Johnny. Johnny said, don't worry about it. You know, we can be open and honest with him. He's our friend. And, you know, we have a lawyer who's going to be able to vet out the things that, you know, should not be included because they are privileged and confidential. Anyway, to make a long story short, the guy turned out to really not be a friend. He didn't let the book get vetted. And all of these things came out that, you know, were that never should have. And Johnny was very upset about it and he was upset you know with me i mean i'm just talking about my things upset with a number of people but i'm just speaking from my own experience he was upset with me and it was very hard for me because sure. i johnny had never been mad at me and my office was next to his and it was just uncomfortable but what i realized and this is a lesson that i learned that is so important to me and that i impart to my daughter to my clients and what I said to Johnny was, listen, all we can control is our own conduct and our own decisions. We can't control what anybody else does or says or how they react. And what 
I, the decision I made at the time was to come to you and to ask you what I should do. And you made the best decision you could make in that moment, which was presuming that this person was good and was going to follow through on what he said he was going to do. And so the decisions we made and our conduct was righteous. And we have no control over what someone else did. And it's horrible that they did that, but we can't be held responsible for that because the decisions we made were the right ones. And so I'm sorry that things turned out this way as much for you and for me and for OJ as it did, but we can only control our own conduct, our own decisions. And so that really serves me well um, because it, 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 it causes me to focus on making the right decisions and, and doing the right thing. And then, you know, sometimes things don't turn out, but that, that wasn't your fault. You did the best you could do in the moment. And as long as you're doing that, then you can sleep at night. Right. Two more questions. Then we'll wrap up. Um, you have a committee of, uh, of three living or dead. Who would you choose? This is your committee of advisors to advise you on life or whatever. Committee of three, they can be alive, they can be dead, a combination thereof. Who would you choose and why? Um, Johnny Cochran. Um, this is, that's not fair. <laughs> Kendrick Lamar. Kendrick Lamar, just because okay. I love Kendrick and that means that I get to like have a relationship with Kendrick where we talk about stuff. Um, and... Malcolm X. Malcolm X. Okay, so let's 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 kind of hear that out. So Kendrick Lamar, why Kendrick? Why is he so fascinating? Of all the people that you know right now, I love Kendrick. I love Kendrick. I think that he is brilliant. I think that he has tremendous insight. I think the way he thinks is amazing, and on another level, uh, his the creative all of it. I just really admire him and think that he would have a lot to contribute and probably see things from a different perspective than almost than certainly than the other two. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Malcolm X. I, Johnny's clearly why you would do that when I Johnny's get that now. one. Yeah. I, mean, yeah, what man, about Malcolm I just X? feel like Malcolm X right now, like this is crazy. I mean, I agree with you guys that like, I think we were tricked into believing that somehow things were different now or they were getting better or progress was being made. And in reality, same as it ever was like it's not nothing has changed and 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 the curtain has been pulled back and Malcolm said that back then and he would say it now and he you know and that <laughs> I would like to hear from him as we are dealing with the things that we're dealing with in 2019 final question you have a billboard that summarizes your motto your belief what does it say and why? Um, well, this is super boring, but it's true. <laughs> and that is simply doing to others as you would have them doing to you. I mean, that's really how it's so cliche and so boring, but it's what it is. I mean, I, I really try to treat people the way I want to be treated. I just feel like if you are out there doing your best, living your best life, treating people well, that that is what is most important. Like, I'm sorry. No, no, that's, <laughs> that's, re that's really good. Listen, we, Sean, we appreciate having you on the show. Thank you for all you do to make our democracy better. As we always say on the show, eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. Stay woke if you want to stay free. Sean, please come on again. Hope to meet you sometime very soon in person. I'm Rob Richardson. 
I'm Tune Dave Online. And I'm Amisha Cross. Sean, and thank you for coming on. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you all next time. Okay.